Now we're going to pray, and this morning our prayers will be informed by the first half of today's reading. So we're going to read Luke 18, starting at verse 9 to the end of the chapter, then we'll pick it up uh, at 19 verse 1 for the remainder of our reading, our main reading. So I'll read 18 verse 9 and onwards, and then I'll pray. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. When the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honour your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he'd become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Well, we're going to pick, up where, pick off where we left at 19 verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten miners and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your miner has made ten miners more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your miner has made five miners. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your miner, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the miner from him and give it to the one who has the ten miners. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten miners. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And when he said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that it's called Olivet. He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as it had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade round you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Well, in a minute, we're going to have a look at that passage. But before we do, a couple of things to mention. The first is question time. That comes at the end. So be aware of that so you know it's coming, so you can think of what questions you might want, like to ask. Second is your sermon outline is in your service sheet, which you can use or abuse at your will. And then finally, and most importantly, let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your son into the world and he set his face determined to get to Jerusalem because that is where his purpose was to be fulfilled. And as we reflect on these last uh, conversations and events before he arrives in Jerusalem, would we feel the full emphasis of what it means to follow him, giving up everything so that we can serve the master at the expense of all other would-be masters. Amen. Well, as we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, we have seen how the Pharisee has refused to repent, while the sinner has been quick to repent. This has meant that Jesus has spent a large amount of his time in the company of sinners, And this has led to criticism from the Pharisees. What distinguishes the two groups of Pharisee and sinner is the first do not accept that Jesus is who he claims to be. They even use the very fact that he receives sinners as evidence that he cannot be who he says. 
since an authentic prophet would not welcome sinners. But the sinner knows something both about themselves and they know something about Jesus that seems to escape the Pharisee. The sinner understands they are a sinner. And they appreciate that their only hope is that the judge of all the world would be merciful. This is what the sinner understands, and this is what escapes the Pharisee. Jesus will have mercy on the sinner who repents. We see this played out in the first parable of today's passage. The Pharisee's prayer is self-congratulatory. He depends wholly upon his own character. Whereas for the tax collector, self-congratulation is completely absent. He depends completely upon God's character, particularly that God is merciful to sinners. Then we come to the rich ruler who asks about eternal life. And this account provides us with a context to understand the account of Zacchaeus. Notice in both cases we have a rich man who wishes to receive eternal life. But the first account, that of the rich ruler, sets an expectation. And the expectation being, it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the rich man asked the question, Jesus told him precisely what he needed to do. One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. This brief line outlines a lot of what has already been said up to this point in Luke. We've already come across the theme of following Jesus at the expense of everything else. We can consider back to Luke 5, verse 27 to 28. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Levi is one of those examples of someone who's left everything to follow Jesus. We can add to this the end of chapter 9 where Jesus expects people to drop everything and prioritise following him. We can further add chapter 14, verse 26, where Jesus expects people to follow him at the expense of their relationship with even their own family, even their own life. What Jesus asks of the rich ruler is no different to what he expected from everybody else. To follow Jesus means that he must be your single focus. 
And last week's passage provided, provided us with everything we need to anticipate the rich ruler's downfall. Two masters cannot be served simultaneously. One will always be loved at the expense of the other. And the rich ruler will demonstrate he truly wishes to serve Jesus by using his unrighteous wealth to help the poor. Only then will it be clear which master he loves and which he hates. Furthermore, he's asked how to receive eternal life. Which means now is his chance. His chance to avoid the same end as the rich man who features in the account with Lazarus. We only find out that he was sad at the thought of giving up his great wealth. Jesus moves on before we have the chance to hear his final decision. What we do know is it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus then comes across another rich man. But notice this man has a name, Zacchaeus. That he's known by name bodes well for him. Remember in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, it was the named character that came off better. However, he is the worst of the worst. Not only is he a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. And he's rich. And so we have this tension. That he bears a name suggests all will end well. Yeah, he's rich. Will therefore his money be the same snare it was for the rich ruler? But then, he is a tax collector. Does this mean he will go home justified like the one we met in the parable in chapter 18? So far, Zacchaeus remains on the outside, which is further illustrated by the fact that he has to climb a tree to catch a glimpse of Jesus. The account begins with Zacchaeus seeking Jesus. But by the end of it, that will be turned on its head. Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' house, an opportunity that he receives joyfully, though it causes another group to grumble. And this brings to mind Luke 15, where there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, while the Pharisees grumble at the inclusion of sinners. But notice, in chapter 19, verse 7, it's not the Pharisees who grumble. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. 
The they refers back to the crowd. This is telling the characteristic that had been isolated to the Pharisees has now found its way to the crowd. Which means the crowd have not taken on board Jesus' earlier warning from chapter 12 to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Zacchaeus responds with the fruit of repentance. It's worth noting that there are two aspects, and both of which are spontaneous. He didn't need to be asked like the rich man was. First, half of what he has, he gives to the poor. Second, he makes restitution to those he has wronged. Having given away half to the poor, and then used the other half to pay back those he had wronged four times over, but it's hard to see how he'll have anything left. He has demonstrated which master he will serve beyond doubt. And Jesus' comment in verse 9 affirms that here is a sinner who is in need of forgiveness and that his act of repentance has led him to salvation. We began with Zacchaeus seeking Jesus, but then we discover at the end the reality is it's Jesus that's come to seek Zacchaeus. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And once again, the lost sheep comes to mind. Zacchaeus was joyful. And that turned into a celebration at Zacchaeus' house. Which reminds us of the same celebration that occurs at Levi's house. A man who'd also left everything and held a celebration for Jesus. All at the same time, while those opposed to God's plan grumbled. So what we see here is that Zacchaeus's joy, feasting and repentance brings Jesus' ministry to a close in the same way that it began. Jesus now is about to enter Jerusalem, the place he set his face for. But before he does, he has to clear up a confusion among his disciples. Have a look at 19 verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. This parable is told because the disciples think the kingdom of God is going to arrive as soon as they enter Jerusalem. So that's the context in which we're to understand the parable. The parable is actually quite a complicated parable. We have a nobleman who has to leave... And it's only by leaving will he become a king. 
Then there are three groups in the parable. There are those, first of all, who don't want him to rule. Then there are those who are servants who invest while he's away. And then the third group are those servants who do not invest while he's away. The servant who doesn't invest will have what he has taken from him and it will be given to the servant who did invest. Those who do not want him to rule, they'll simply be slaughtered. Jesus' followers have set their face to Jerusalem along with him. And they're nearly there. But the purpose of this parable is to demonstrate that their journey isn't over. What is about to happen will not make any sense to them. There will be a delay until the full consummation of God's kingdom. And it's in the meantime that they will have a job to do. They have much to endure. They will have much to do before Jesus returns. They will have to continue the work that Jesus has begun. And they'll have to continue that work until he returns. The work they have to do is the calling of the sinner to repentance. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the things that we've been able to reflect upon this morning. And we thank you for the example of Zacchaeus, who was the man who, though it seemed he sought you, your son was seeking him. We thank you that he was willing to make your son his master at the cost of all else. And as we continue to reflect upon Luke, we ask that we would be among those numbers that are joyfully repenting at the thought of serving your son at the expense of all else. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the start there'd be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things we've been thinking about. That time has arrived. I'll give you a moment to think. Okay, just repeat for the recording. What's the significance of the miners in the parable? I don't... So... Hmm. I think there's a sense in that... I don't know, I always think it's quite interesting. Like, what do we go for? Um... How, when you read a parable, what do you think? Do we think in terms of there's this, there's this, there's this, and that matches up with that, and that, and that? Or is there one thing that needs to be picked out, and that's that, and everything else is just kind of support, plays a supporting role? Or maybe, I don't know, 
a slightly more sophisticated way of thinking about it is actually sometimes it kind of just gives you a feeling that actually you can't spell out. It's kind of like when you tell a joke and try and explain it. It just doesn't really work. But when you, you know, when it causes you to laugh, you find it hilarious. And I think there's an element to reading parables that goes with that, I think. So I think how, if we think in terms of broadly, the broad strokes of it, so the king or the nobleman has given responsibility to his servants. The question is what they're going to do with that responsibility. So if we think in terms of the parallel here, Jesus has given his followers a responsibility, and the question is what they're going to do with that responsibility. I think that responsibility um, has to relate to well, ultimately, the ministry that we've been given to do to call sinners to repentance. We could match it up with the parable of the dishonest manager. So back there, we've said, verse, chapter 16, verse 8, the master commended the dishonest, demand, dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So, that which we can invest in now, to use the uh, language of the parable, is relationships that will last for eternity. So, if I speak to someone and they want to hear about the gospel, I tell them about the gospel and they're saved. I don't want to say that's one minor, <laughs> but you know, there's a sense in that when I enter into my eternal dwellings, I will meet that person. It's a relationship I already have with that person. It's already been established. It's, it's a friend who's there, who will be there when I get there. So... And I think this is one of the things that Adrian drew out when we did that passage. You, know, you guys are going to meet one another in our eternal dwellings. And that, I think, really puts things into perspective. Um, you know, so when you upset me and wind me up, what do I do? Do I say... I can't be doing with you. Get out of my face. Or do I say, well, actually, I need to suck it up because you are those people who I will spend eternity with. You know, we will reciprocate in eternity in an eternal way, in a glorified way there. So let's begin to anticipate that now. So I think... I think that gives some concreteness to it. Um, you know the whole um, the saying, wealth and that, you can't take it with you and all that sort of thing. You can't take your material possessions with you. I think this, again, Adrian teased this out the other day, but our relationships with fellow Christians, we can take them with us. They are eternal. 
So I think that becomes precious. So I think on that, we've got, you know, you can sort of stack these things up. You've got, you are created in God's image. Therefore, I have a high regard for you as reflecting God's character. You have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Therefore, I have a high regard for you because God spilt his own blood for your sake. And you will be my companions in our eternal dwellings. Therefore, I will reflect that truth now as I relate to you. So, yeah, good question. Yeah. Any other questions, thoughts, comments? A work. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Let me just repeat that for recording. So verse 42, we see, And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Um, so how are we to understand that, um, particularly think in terms of the danger of um, uh, there's an effort on his part that has made him well. So I think possibly the best way to go along with this is the, I think the term faith has become a bit of a confusion um, I think we've lost its true definition. And I think um, we were listening to, on, on Radio 2, on the way home from church, I think Michael Ball is on. And uh, he always finishes thing with, uh, keep the faith. And I think one of the boys noticed it. And he was like, is he a Christian? I was like, no, he's not a Christian. I don't know why he says it, but he says it. Along with um, another one. Anyway, someone else on Radio 2 always says as well. And um, I don't know why is Radio 2... Yeah, anyway. So it's become this thing. And I, I remember once at school, someone said to me, when I was talking to him about Christianity, this is when I was a teacher, not a, a student. Uh, I s- he said to me, well, I wish I had your faith. You know, if I had your faith, I could believe. But I haven't got your faith, therefore I can't believe. He's just like... What are you talking about? Um, and so faith has become this mysterious thing out there. Ultimately, faith just means trust. And funnily enough, faith means believe. So when he says, I wish I had your faith and I could believe, it's like, well, it's just believe then, because that's... So trust is all about dependence. And I think the blind beggar... Um, It sort of supports what's already been established by the children. That the children has nowhere to go. They have no way to provide food. Therefore, they depend upon their parents. You know, um, yeah, I could get distracted. So they completely rely and depend upon their parents for everything, literally. And that is until you know, they're 18 or whatever. Um, and there's a sense in that this man, Jesus is walking by. He says, who's, who's, what's going on? And they say, Jesus is walking by. 
And he says, well, I know who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah. Therefore, this is my chance. Because when the Messiah comes, the blind will see. So what he's doing there is distinguishing himself from the Pharisees because he recognises this is the one the prophet's spoken about. This is the one who brings light uh, and brings sight to the blind. So this is the time that I've been waiting for as someone who can't see to be able to see. So he, like the child, throws himself upon Jesus and says, have mercy on me, give me my sight, or I depend upon you for vision. You are the one who can provide it. There's no one else who can provide it. So that's the sort of faith that we have there. So I think we could maybe rephrase it, recover your sight, your dependence upon me, your trust in me alone, your belief that I will be able to do what you've called me to do. Um, again, going back to the tax collector, the parable of the tax collector, his belief that we'll have sight depends nothing upon his own character, but is purely that prayer of, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Um, yeah. So he's calling out to the one who can give sight and depending upon him for it. Is that... Um, or are you asking a totally different question? No, no, that, that is, that's helpful. Um, yeah, I think there's just a lot of obvious questions from that, but yeah, another time. Cool, yeah, yeah. Time for one more? Yes, Nikki. Yeah, good question. So verse 30, uh, who will not... Um, so just go back a bit further. Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So let me have a stab, uh, but we'll leave it open. I think what's going on here... Obviously in verse 29 it's established an idea, a concept that's already been introduced, that when you follow Jesus, you're going to do so at the expense of some of your relationships. So uh, if, you're, if you follow Jesus and your children don't, you'll be at odds with your children and, and so on and so forth. So there's a sense there that I think that that provides a context of then who will not receive many times more in this time suggests that those absent relationships will be replaced with other relationships. So once again, um, we become isolated in the sense that our earthly relationships will break down, but they are replaced with our, uh, the relationships we have within the church and the people of God. Which again, given what we've said when we're thinking about Hannah's question, they have a weight to them that is absent in those other relationships. So I think that's what he's talking about. Cool. Let's finish there then. Um, well, not finish. We're going to sing. Uh, and then we're going to have a further reflection on a bit of the passage that I have not talked about yet. So let's stand to sing in Christ alone.